Uh, we are in the book of Genesis, as you all know, in our series in the beginning. And our passage is from Genesis 6, verses 9 to Genesis, the end of chapter 7. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the doors of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third depths. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. The seven pairs of the birds of the heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of the animals that are not clean and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the, water, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground, uh, creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. 
The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. What we have here is an event of untold cataclysm and destruction that completely reshaped the surface of the world. Whatever existed before the flood was completely destroyed in an event of epic upheaval and destruction. Whole land masses were washed away, mountains were made low, and all life on the planet was wiped out. It was an event of biblical proportions, that's where we get that phrase from, and it was never to be repeated. In verse 9, we see this reset of the narrative. Now, the last section of Genesis took us from the line of Seth all the way down until verse 8. Uh, here we can see the narrative resets because it says in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. And so from before, we were kind of focusing in on Seth and his lineage. Now we're going to focus in on Noah. Noah is now the focus and center point of this story. And in this entire passage, we're going to focus on three things. Three things that I find very significant. The first thing is the significance of God's judgment. The second thing is the significance of Noah's life. And the third thing is the significance of salvation. Now the passage tells us the reason God had for destroying the world in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And that's our first point, the significance of God's judgment. For 1,650 years, God had been patient and kind with this people who had only multiplied their sin, who had invented new ways of sinning. And we learn from characters such as the prophet Enoch that God had sent plenty of, uh, a lot of warnings to these people. He, he sent gifted men to call people back to covenant faithfulness, or at least he sent one man. And God did not just spring this out of nowhere. He didn't just decide, no, that's enough. And he clicked his fingers and then everything was destroyed. And we saw also that there was a corruption of all flesh when the sons of God, seeking to destroy the seed of the woman, came in to the daughters of men and bore children to them. And now we see uh, that there is violence and bloodshed and hardship and suffering and oppression. This world was as bad as it gets. The strong were ruling with a violence that was mind-boggling, that shocked God. That caused God to be grieved in his heart. And we don't really know what form it took, but our imagination can take us to many places, and they're probably going to be right. And his judgment was going to fall, and it was going to be swift. He says, seven days, then get into that ark, because my judgment is going to come, and it is going to be destructive. And it's got an interesting phrase that I want to highlight for you. It says here that the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. Verse 11. This is a very important phrase. A very, very important phrase. 
In a time like ours, where every man and his dog wants to define what is good and what is evil, we should always be reminded of this very, very important philosophical fact. We are not the definers of good and evil. That is not our role. We don't get to call evil good and good evil. Either good and evil exist outside of us and is an external reality that we must discover, or it doesn't exist at all. If we define it, it's an illusion. Good and evil don't exist. The people living at this time would undoubtedly have agreed with God that there was evil in the world around them, but what they would have disagreed with when it came to God was what was justifiable and what was not. It doesn't matter whether or not we feel that something is corrupt in our own sight. We need to work out whether it's corrupt in God's sight. And God judges totally. Are we going to jump ahead to verse 18 in, in chapter 7? It says that the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily that the earth and all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. All flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed the earth, all mankind, everything on the dry land whose nostrils was the, had the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, men and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. You get an idea of what's going on here, don't you? This was total, complete annihilation of the entire world. The biblical writer, in this case Moses, uses all the tools of the Hebrew language at his disposal to convey to us the sheer magnitude of this event. Everything at his disposal was there to show us the total destruction of all life, and it was so extensive that it covered every mountain at the time to at least 15 cubits deep. That's about 6.75 meters deep. The flood was global. It affected the whole world. And uh, there are many resources you can look into if you want to look at the evidence and arguments for a worldwide global flood. Uh, come have a chat to me after the service if you want to get involved in that conversation. Uh, what I'm doing today in this sermon is talking about the theological significance of the flood. But if you want to talk about the geological and the scientific, all that stuff, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm just not going to do it here in my sermon. We see this extensive destruction and the, the widespread of it, and God has good reason for doing it. But then we single out Noah, and we come to this person in this story, and we see that he's quite significant. We learn some important information about him. Uh, last week we saw in uh, verse 8, chapter 6, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that word favor, I think, is translated perfectly. It's one of the few times where a Hebrew word and an English word just, oh, they get it so right. The English word just captures what the Hebrew is saying, because that's exactly what it is. Another word for favor is grace, and you guys know that word very well. This could be just as perfectly translated as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And here we see grace, grace woven through the fabric of Scripture. Grace is something that God pours out as He wills. And we see the significance of the person Noah, our second point. In verse 9, our first verse, it says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. It gives us three important bits of information. Noah was righteous. He was blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. Number three, 
Now, the first two ideas are tied together. Noah was considered to be righteous and blameless in his generation, and to be blameless in your generation means that no one in your generation can make a charge against you. No one can accuse you of wrongdoing in your immediate surrounds. And we know that from the Bible, it's very clear that there is no person that ever lived that was without sin, bar one. In fact, this week, uh, last week, sorry, we learned that the thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. Did anyone feel like knife in the chest when you read that? You're like, oh, that's a hard pill to swallow. And in the midst of human sin, including his own sin, Noah managed to live in such a way that he was able to please God in the way he conducted himself. And he was able to live righteously amongst a violent people. Albert Moeller notes that sometimes it doesn't take a very righteous man to live righteously in his generation. The standard wasn't set very high for Noah. But we don't want to take away from him the fact that he was blameless. But if we look at verse 8, the fact that Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord, we immediately think, oh, why did he find favour? And then we read verse 9 and we go, oh, that's why he found favour. Because he was righteous. That would be a bad reading of the text. Look at the order. What comes first? Does Noah do good and then finds favour? Or does Noah find favour and then acts righteously? We naturally want to go backwards. We naturally want to swap verse 8 with verse 9. But the Bible doesn't do that for us. We want to believe that God extends us grace and favour because we are good people. But what do we see in Noah? Well, we learn first of the fact that Noah found grace from God. And then we see that Noah was blameless in his generation. How could Noah have been blameless? There's only one answer. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And this is a consistent pattern we see all throughout Scripture. You're going to see in the book of Genesis, as we keep going through it, we don't see these amazing figures that pop up and God's like, man, that guy's awesome. I'm going to bless him and I'm going to make him his name great. We see from Noah, Abraham, Moses, even all the way to the Apostle Paul, doesn't matter which man you talk about, God extends grace to them. First, and then they grow into men of righteousness. As a result of grace, one of the works. King David was a shepherd boy, overlooked by everyone else and not overlooked by God. God's grace extends to us first. It's always an extension of God's grace that explains how anyone can be seen as righteous. This is further driven home by Hebrews 11.7. Pay close attention to this language. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The righteousness that comes by faith. Such a good phrase. Over the course of a century, Noah was a man of faith, building an ark in a world that could not even imagine what was about to occur. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, you could say. His righteousness didn't come necessarily because Noah was a great guy, but because he had faith. And this is where we see, woven through the fabric of Scripture, this idea of a righteousness, an external righteousness, outside of yourself, being given to you by faith. It also says in this passage that Noah walked with God. And it's a very significant biblical metaphor. Very significant. We pick up immediately on the importance of the imagery. Uh, it's the same sort of, it's the exact same phrase we see with Enoch. You guys remember Enoch, right? 
how he walked with God, he didn't see death because then God took him. Well, Noah and God were on the same path. They were walking side by side. It's an imagery of friendship, companionship, mutual affection. You don't walk side by side with people you don't know well. You guys ever had that awkward moment when you say goodbye to someone and then you have to walk the same direction and you don't know what to do? You're like, oh, do I let them walk slightly in front of me and then I walk behind them? Or do I just power on ahead and walk in front of them? Why is that awkward? Because we kind of formally ended our relationship with that person and decided to part ways and then we have to do something really intimate with them. We have to walk next to them. And you think, why is it such a big deal to walk next to someone? Walk next to a stranger on the street. I said this the other day. Walk next to the stranger in the street and see how weirded out they are going to be by it. They're not going to want to walk next to you. Why? Because it's an inherently intimate act. And the metaphor of walking with God is a very valuable and precious metaphor to us as Christians. Very valuable and very precious because we know the joy and peace it is to have fellowship with God. Have you ever had someone come and ask you, how's your walk with God going? You know what they're saying. They're not asking you whether you're going to church. They're not even asking you whether you're reading your Bible or praying, although that does come into it. They're asking you, are you connected to God or are you disconnected? They're asking you if you're living your life before Him in a relationship and fellowship with Him as opposed to going through the motions. <coughs> the question of whether we're living our lives before Him or in the shadows. That's what, that question is loaded. I don't think we realize how loaded that question is when someone says, how's your walk with God? They're asking a lot more than you think. And Noah was faithful in his generation. He walked with God. And he was going to become this important figure in the history of redemption. Someone that hundreds of millions of people know about. Billions of people over the course of human history know about Noah because God was going to use Noah to preserve for himself a people. Brings me to my third point. The significance of God's salvation. God's means of salvation was going to be an ark. Roughly 135 metres long, 22.5 metres wide, and 13.5 metres tall. It was a massive boat. It was huge. But if you compare it to an ocean liner, a cruise ship that you see today, it was actually quite small. But some people think that a boat of this size wasn't even feasible to members of the ancient world. But there are actually a few examples of boats of similar sizes in the ancient world. For instance, a Ptolemaic Egyptian boat existed in around 230 BC that was just shorter than the ark at 130 metres long. Just like the ark, it had three levels. Quite amazing. The Chinese would build these old treasure ships, some of them even bigger than the ark, out of wood. And here we find God directing Noah to build this ark out of gopher wood. You might be thinking, what is gopher wood? I've never heard of gopher wood before. Well, no one knows what it is. We don't have any tree that we can point to and say, that's a gopher tree. That's where he got his wood. We don't know. The Bible has just simply transliterated that Hebrew term gopher to us. Whatever that tree is, it simply vanished. It doesn't exist anymore. And God chose this wood specifically, so perhaps, we don't know for certain, but it's likely that this wood had special characteristics that enabled a very sturdy and a very um, uh, sea-worthy uh, vessel. And we also find something else very fascinating here. 
Most of us remember rain falling for 40 days, but we don't realize what else accompanied it. Uh, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Most of us overlook that passage and go straight to the windows of the heavens were open. But we shouldn't get it mixed up, because the fountains of the great deep bursting forth gives us some good information on what's going on. In the mantle of the earth, there is enough water to fill the oceans ten times over. It's amazing. Currently, all about 98% of the world's liquid fresh water is underground. Something else I found fascinating is that at any one moment, 12.9 quintillion litres of water are in the air across the whole world, simply floating above our heads. And if you don't know what a quintillion is, it's a million billion. That's a lot. That's a lot of water. Imagine if it all fell at once. Oh, that'd be carnage. It's hard to know just how much water we're talking about. But it is mind-bogglingly massive, an insane amount of water. And through this event, God's going to bring the ark safely through these waters. And his salvation is going to come to humanity. And he's going to completely destroy the world except the person of Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. This event was completely unexpected to the people who were living at the time. The way we know this is because Jesus gives us a bit more information. Matthew 24. He's comparing this judgment with his coming later. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Life was going as it always had for these people. For some of them, a horrid existence. For others, quite a pleasant existence. They were in charge. They were powerful. They were strong. They had all this stuff. Life was going well. And yet God waited patiently until the time he had appointed for judgment. The people weren't aware, but they were warned. They were warned. We can see that through the prophet Enoch. They remembered the stories of Adam and Eve, no doubt. They knew of the story of Cain. They knew of Enoch. But they paid no attention to their history. They paid no attention to their moral failures. And they continued to live as if nothing was going to happen. Why did they think like this? Well, every day they woke up and the world was the same. Every year they aged, the world was the same. Everything kept operating the way it was supposed to. And it's this great lie of uniformity that as the world is today, so it will be in the future. But that is a lie. How can we be so sure that that is the case? The Apostle Peter picks up on this in 2 Peter 3, 4-9. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Things don't actually continue the same way. Sometimes events come that upset the peace and tranquility of the time. 
You're not going to catch me quoting Vladimir Lenin, the father of the Russian Revolution, very often, but he has a great quote. This is very right. He says that there are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Good quote. Periods of peace and stagnation never last in a fallen world. They're not the norm. God will not stand idly by and see sin going on in this world. God's timeline is not the same as ours. Peter actually continues in this passage. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reap repentance. Amazing passage. God does not experience time the way we experience time. Thousand years is as one day, and one day is as a thousand years. One day is as detailed as if a thousand years had passed in that day to God, and a thousand years as as seamless and as unimportant as one day occurring. This is language trying to help us understand who God is. And every time we try to think about it, I don't know about you guys, but it just hurts my brain trying to comprehend who God is. But God will wrap up this world one day. One day his gospel will go to the ends of the earth and the people he desires to save will find salvation. He is patient and long-suffering, but he is not slow. God is not slow. He is not deliberately delaying. He's waiting for the right time. And although Noah built the ark, it was the hand of God that saved him. I want to point out something else. Verse 16, chapter 7. The Lord shut him in. He didn't shut himself in. It was the Lord. Now, I take this as not only meaning that God sealed them in just by shutting the door, but that God sovereignly ensured that they would remain safe through the waters. That God had shut them in for the purpose of protecting them. And we know this, uh, we know from the New Testament that this story also points beyond itself in a way in which God would save us completely. Just as this first judgment, the only hope of salvation was being in the ark, so also in the next great judgment that God will do on this world when he will burn the world with fire, the only hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ. Just as the ark brought eight people safely through God's wrath, so also does Jesus Christ bring us safely through the future wrath of God. How does he do this? Well, the ark took on the full force of the wrath of God in order to protect those inside it. The full weight of the water crashed against the ark, and the ark was shut in and protected by God, and those inside would not perish. So also does Jesus take on the full force of the wrath of God, dying in the process so that all who believe in him may be protected, and they may rise again just as he rose again from the dead. Not only does Jesus protect us, but he brings us safely through God's wrath into a new life. He brings you safely across. Just as Noah could start again in a new world, free from all kinds of violence and oppression of the past, so also does Jesus free us up right now to live as a free people in this world, free from the world of slavery to sin. In the same way that God shut them in the ark, so also does he actively protect his people and bring them through this life into the next. And when you look at the story of Noah's ark, we see the full force of God's wrath against sin. And really, it's only a drop compared to what we will see. 
But we also see God's salvation, grace and mercy as he brings something new to the table. In the time of Noah, only eight people survived. In our time, there will be descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens. God's grace is so lavish, his mercy so abundant, that untold multitudes will come and believe in Jesus. And we live in that time. Sometimes you read the Bible and you wonder where you fit in it. That's where we fit. And God's great plan of salvation as the gospel goes forward to the four corners of the world. We live in that time and have all the more confidence to share the gospel faithfully, truthfully, and unswervingly, boldly, courageously, as we seek to see salvation come to every home in this area. Because we know that we live in a time where God has built an ark big enough for all of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we read stories like this, we are reminded just how serious you take sin, just how serious your judgments are on this world. And Lord, often we can fall for the lie that says that all things will continue as they did before. But we know, Lord, that peace is an illusion, that sin is real, and that sin is corrupting this world, and eventually it breaks forth. But praise be to you, Lord, that you have provided us an ark in Jesus Christ that will protect us and bring us through this storm. He will bring us through our own sin, bring us through the wrath of the devil and the raging of the nations. I pray for my friends here this afternoon. I pray, Lord, that they would come to a mature understanding of your gospel, that that gospel would spring forth in them and bear fruit, that their lives would be marked by a godliness that is different to the world around them. Lord, would you bring to their minds sins? Would you use their brothers and sisters to help us to confess as we grow into the church that you have a vision for us? We thank you, Lord, that in the past you saved eight people, that in the future and in our present you saved untold multitudes. Thank you that you included us in this and that you were patient because if you were not patient, Lord, we would not have been saved. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name.